The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, which I hope you do, you're going to need them today, we will uh, be back in Ephesians chapter 1. So if you could turn towards the back of your Bible to the the very small but significant, extremely significant letter to the Ephesians from the Apostle Paul, that's where we're going to return to today. I think last week we only got through really two verses, so we're going to try to increase that pace over time, but we're not going to rush because this is so, so important. If you remember from last week, the beginning of this letter to the Ephesians starts with this greeting from the Apostle Paul to the saints who are in Ephesus. And as we looked at last week, we remember that this letter could have just as easily been written to the saints in Clifton. Why? Well, because this is a letter to the church broadly, and it was also a letter, even in Ephesus, that was to be distributed to all the churches in the area widely to these newly formed Christian churches. And so after the beginning, this greeting in verses 1 and 2, we see from verse 3 to 14 this extended doxology, this one continuous sentence in the original Greek, complicated but glorious sentence that is one unified thought declaring the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. As you read these verses, I want you to think of them like a song of celebration as we were just singing and praising God for what he has accomplished and what he will bring to fulfillment in the resurrection of our bodies, we sing in joy of this. And you see this in Paul as he's just recounting what God has given us in Christ to the praise of his glory. I'll read the verses to you again in just a moment. But, but in this, I also want you to see as we go through these verses, uh, the Trinitarian nature of our God as the Father blesses us with all these spiritual blessings in Christ through the enablement of the Holy Spirit. And so last week we looked at this, all these different ways that Paul uses this little phrase, in Christ, and what it implicates for those who have believed. Do you remember, this is now your identity. This is who you are. You are in him. You are in Christ. It's no longer how we feel or, or what we do, what we've done, what we aspire to be, but rather restored to the image that God intended, you are no longer dust as in Adam, you are in Christ. In Christ, believer, by faith in Jesus, you no no longer have to guess what your identity is. You're his. And, And so what we saw is that in Christ, you are a saint. You are a saint of the living God. In Christ, you have grace and peace from God, our Father. And so in Christ, because of his finished work on the cross and and taking the full wrath of God upon himself, those who believe in him have exchanged our sin for his righteousness. Not only does he take our sin, but he gives us something in return. He gives us his righteousness. And so this is, this is what we saw last week, that in Christ, what, we, what he's accomplished for us is that we are saved from the penalty of our sin. We are justified by what he has done, just as if we'd never sinned. Secondly, we are being saved in this present life from the power of sin as he sanctifies us, as he makes us more like him. And lastly, we look forward to this. We will be saved from the presence of sin, glorified, in the presence of God. Justified, sanctified, being made righteous, and we look forward to being glorified, perfected in righteousness. I want to read this to you, just a few of these verses, to to tell you some of the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. We'll read the remaining verses in just a few minutes. But, but this says that in Christ, you are blessed with every spiritual blessing, every spiritual blessing. In Christ, you are chosen to be holy and blameless. In Christ, you are predestined for something, for adoption as sons and daughters to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, when I say that word predestined, I wonder how, how all of you, you feel about that. There's this word predestined, it's a word that there's been more spilled ink over, more uh, theologians and seminary students staying up late. Many of you have probably had conversations that have gone for hour after hour about this idea of predestination. For some of you, um, you might not know about this, but I, I was tempted to apologize in advance to all our small group leaders this week because of the discussions that they're going to have to manage. But I'm not, I'm not going to apologize to you because it is so precious what this word actually implicates for us as believers. It's, it's so good. It's, it's beyond what I, I can tell you. Because when we hear this predestination word, something that, that often comes to our mind, the way we often think about this, what will probably come to your mind is this constant debate about God's sovereignty on the one hand versus man's responsibility, right? We think about, in other words, what degree of control does God exercise over the lives of individual humans, especially in terms of our salvation, what is our ability to respond to the gospel versus our inability in sin to respond to the gospel? And what I often hear is an argument like this. It goes something like this. God is all-knowing. Do we agree with that? God is all-knowing. Yes, God is all-knowing. And so if God already knows what I will do, if he knows the end from the beginning, how I will respond, what choices I will make, that means it's already decided, which means God on some level has decided my fate. And so I don't really have a choice, do I? And so, so we think divine foreknowledge, that presupposes determination, right? This is kind of how this line of thinking goes. I'd say, no, wrong, actually. Foreknowledge, knowing what someone will do, does not mean that you have made a decision for them. Let me illustrate this. I know full well that as this sermon goes and as it gets a little too long, Moises will come onto the stage and start playing piano. <laughs> I know he will. And that, does that mean that I want him to? Does that mean that I want him to when he does? No. no so, so in that, what we see is that I have not made that decision for him necessarily, even though I have perfect and clear foreknowledge that he is going to do that, right? Pre-knowledge is not the same thing as predetermination. In fact, I've often seen this in parents as they lament the poor choices of their, their growing children because they know what those choices will result in if their children don't turn from a particular path. 2 Peter 3 describes God as long-suffering, waiting for our repentance, patient toward us in our rebellion, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And I take God at his word that he is genuine in this. The prophets are full of accounts of God's patience toward people who are in utter rebellion. I was reading in Ezekiel this morning, and God is, is lamenting the cry of his people that say, God, you're not just you're not just in the way you treat sin. And he, he tells them, I'm not just. Though you live an unrighteous life, if you just turn to me in repentance, I will forgive you. I will give you life. He says, how is that not just? How am I not fair? 
We see then that, that God is constantly warning and admonishing his people, especially the nation of Israel, to turn to him in repentance. He holds them responsible for their rebellion, uh, for their activity against his commands. In fact, Romans 9 to 11, uh, which is a parallel to Ephesians here, it's a declaration of God's long suffering and his patience toward his covenant people, Israel. It's a declaration of his preordained plan to save the Gentiles. And even through that, it's an appeal. In Romans 11, we see him talk about that Paul talked about that his hope is that the Jewish people will look at the salvation of Gentiles and they'll be jealous by that. And they'll be wooed by that to come to Christ, to return to Christ so that the, those natural branches can be grafted back in to become fruitful. So it's an appeal. God is appealing to the world. Do you know, believers, that God is appealing to the world through you? That's what the scripture says. And do we take him at his word that, that he is genuine in his desire to see people come to repentance? I do. What that means is that we're not robots in, in which God, a God acting deterministically is causing us to sin and then determining to punish us for sin and then putting that sin on his son and, and kind of like cleaning up his own mess. No. Now, how many of you know that, that we are in desperate shape in our own sin, in our own rebellion? in need of this gospel of grace because we realize that we cannot be righteous before a holy God apart from his intervention. We realize we cannot save ourselves. We cannot make ourselves what Ephesians 1 described believers as holy and blameless before him. Only he can do that. And he has made a way through the cross for us to receive his righteousness as we turn to him. Like the thousands at Pentecost where they say, what do we do? And Peter says, repent, turn. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus. And thousands come to faith in response to that gospel. We too have that opportunity. You have that opportunity to turn to the good news that he brings. This is really the story of scripture. From cover to cover, what we see is man's rebellion against God. Man's utter disdain for God's law, for righteousness, for holiness. We pursue our own aims. And yet in response to that, we see God's amazing plan from cover to cover, to accomplish our redemption in spite of our rebellion. God wins. God accomplishes his will, not because he dictates our every action, but in spite of the violent opposition of Satan and the rebellion of man. Now, that is the sovereignty of God, that, that even in our rebellion, even in the opposition of the enemy, he still accomplishes his purposes and his will. That kind of power, that kind of patience, that kind of sovereignty, it shouldn't cause us to despair. It should cause us to worship. He's so good. He's so beyond our understanding. And that kind of grace amazes me. So we see then that predestination, this word that appears here in Ephesians, is not determinism. So then what is it? And what we tend to do in, in trying to understand difficult terminologies is many of us do this. We just look to the experts or our favorite preacher or author, and we ask ourselves what other people have said about this doctrine, right? Uh, uh, this concept in sermons we've heard, books we've read, or history we've studied. But the mistake we can make is we often begin with a particular theological tech, uh, take, and then we apply that to the scriptures. We take a viewpoint and then interpose that onto the scriptures, and then typically it's one borrowed from someone else, and, and we put that upon the word of God. So, so maybe we begin with someone who's really smart, who has thought deeply about these things, who has written extensively about these things. Someone like John Calvin, who taught that the predestination was God's selection of a limited number of individuals for salvation and not others, in which he determines from before time, based on his wishes, 
to save some and to condemn others. And after all, he is God and we are not. But, but rather than starting with someone named John, like John Calvin or John MacArthur or John Piper or John Cena or Papa John's, <laughs> what I want to encourage all of us to do is to start with simply what the word of God says and then let that be the basis for our theology. What I want to do this morning is, is teach you not just about this, this concept that we'll talk about it in, in a moment in predestination, not just to teach you about that, but also to teach us together how to study the scriptures for ourselves, to investigate these things. I don't have time to talk about everything that this implicates today. And so my encouragement to you is in your small groups to discuss this, in your private study times to study this, to open up the word of God as much as you can. It's impossible to, to remove your preconceptions. I realize that. But as much as you can to simply read what it says and believe God for what he says about himself. And what this approach to any, any kind of theological topic is called, is called biblical theology, where we look at the word first and we see what it has to say. And then once we have a clear understanding of what the word reveals, then we might, we, we might investigate further by looking at what historical figures in the church thought about this. And that's called historical theology. And, and that's something fun to do if you're into that kind of thing. You go and you look at what people throughout history have said, concluded, taught about this particular subject. Or we could go to systematic theology, which pulls in all kinds of information. It pulls in biblical texts, obviously, philosophy, historical theology, uh, what God has revealed in nature, in the world, throughout history, all these kinds of things. And that's called systematic theology, in which a, a diversity of opinions are represented and then a conclusion is reached. And all of those are good. Historical theology is helpful. Systematic theology is helpful. But what we need to always begin with is forming a biblical theology of these difficult-to-understand issues. Now, when I say that, some of you are going to uh, maybe respond in your hearts and minds, Mark, I'm not a theologian. And that's why I come to church so that I can learn and hear about these things. Listen, you may not feel like you are a theologian, but you will realize that you are one very quickly when I say something that you disagree with. <laughs> right? We are all theologians. But to be the best students of God, to, to be steadfast as disciples, it requires that we carefully consider the word of God and what it means for our lives, what it implicates. And so what you would do to do a biblical theology of, of predestined, this word, is we would look up every occurrence of this word in a scripture using a good concordance, something like Strong's Concordance. And what you will find is that this word predestined appears six times in scripture in four different passages. Six times in four different passages. And, and what it is discussing in the original Greek, this word pro-orizo, pro-orizo, we, we see two words in it. Pro as in pre, before, and orizo where we get the word horizon from. And so you could think of this as pre-horizoning, laying out, setting out, marking out beforehand, foreordaining, foreordaining, I should say, a future reality. And so God knows all. He knows what will happen. And God marks out things that he will accomplish, that he has determined beforehand to accomplish. And so what I'm going to do is spin this whiteboard around. I heard so many compliments last week on my handwriting that I uh, just thought I should do it again, right? Okay. Now, this is going to be kind of hard to see. So you have these scriptures in your notes as well. And what I've given you is simply the, the four passages in which the scripture, uh, this word appears, as well as, in a couple cases, some, some helpful cross-references, some other clarifying passages for these particular passages that we're going to look at. So the first one that we see in scripture, the first time this, time this word predestined comes up is in Acts chapter four, starting in verse 28. 
So this is what we do. We simply read what it says, and, and then we ask ourselves, who is this talking about, and predestined for what? That's what we're going to do. Can we do that together? Yeah? Okay. A, you know, I'm going to anyway. So as long as you stick around, that's what we're going to do. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 28. Uh, so let me give some context to this, what's going on in Acts chapter 4. After Pentecost, the church is beginning to grow. Peter and John are ministering. They're going to the temple every day in Jerusalem, and they're preaching Jesus. And they go to the temple, and there sitting outside the temple is a man who is crippled. And he's asking for silver and gold. And they say, silver and gold we don't have. And then Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus, stand and walk. You remember this passage? He stands up and he walks. And then he goes celebrating into the temple what Jesus has done for him. Peter and John are also preaching about how did this happen? It's through Jesus who you, the religious leaders, gathered there just weeks after Jesus' death on a cross, Jesus who you crucified. He did this. And they're appalled by this. Maybe you would be too. If you realize that the person that you executed, his name is still being preached. He's still being extolled. People are still doing his work in his name. And so the Sanhedrin, the leaders in the temple, the temple officials, they try to shut this down and they, they warn Peter and John, stop talking about Jesus or else, or else. How do Peter and John respond? No. They say no. They leave after this reprimand, this warning, and they go and they gather with the other believers and they're praying together and they're praying about this, how to, how to continue to stand in boldness. And this is what they reassure themselves with. It says, when they were, were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, sovereign Lord, they declare his, his oversight of all of this. You made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers who were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. They're saying, God, you saw all this, this opposition to Jesus coming way before. And they comfort themselves in this. And they say, for truly in this city, this happened. There were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, to do uh, with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And so when we see this word predestined in this context, what it is indicating to us is that Christ was predestined to come and suffer at the hands of sinners. Christ, the cross. This is what God had predestined, that Christ would come, that his anointed would be oppressed on all sides. And, and they are reminding themselves as they are seeking boldness from the Lord to continue this work, that God sovereignly saw that even the suffering and death of his anointed one would happen, and he predestined it to take place. God predestined the cross. Can we agree on that? that God predestined the cross of Christ, that Christ would come and through darkness would, though darkness would be appearing to prevail. As the Jews and Gentiles plotted together, they raged against Jesus and crucified him, even though God had a sovereign and fixed plan to bring about our redemption through the unjust murder of Christ. In other words, God's plan of redemption, the cross and Christ on it was planned and it was sure and it was predestined from before time. And that's good news, isn't it? It's good news for us, what he did and accomplished. The second passage we see is in 1 Corinthians. 
1 Corinthians chapter 2, if you want to flip over there to your right. And depending on your translation, they may have chosen a different word to express the same idea here of this predestination. It says this in in verse 7. It says, well, I'll go to verse 6. Paul says, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed, God predestined before the ages for our glory. So what is that? What's that all about? This is why I put a clarifying passage in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. He's saying that God preordained some hidden mystery. And Paul will tell us what that mystery is. If we, if we want to know what this mystery is, this, this hidden plan of God, it says this in first, uh, sorry, Ephesians 3, 6, which we'll come to in the coming weeks. It says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is the mystery. This is, the, is what was predestined by God, that the Gentiles, who? The Gentiles, Gentiles, would be saved through Christ. Those who are in Christ, even the Gentiles, would experience salvation. This is a glorious good news hidden in Christ until, in God until the proper time that not even the heavenly authorities, the rulers with God in heaven understood or saw this coming, but God has now revealed it to his apostles, particularly to the apostle Paul. Is this good news? It is. The majority of us are this, Gentiles saved by this good news, this hidden mystery of God that he would come to save Gentiles. And this is so important that we are fellow heirs. This is so important because we have this tendency, especially as Americans, as as Western people, to make the scriptures, especially scriptures about election, predestination, God's sovereign plan for salvation. We make that so individual and, and, and so about us as if the scriptures revolve around us. But when we see these scriptures in context, especially in Romans, especially in Ephesians, what we see is that this future hope and and salvation that was established before time, this hope is corporate in nature. And and it has far less to do, these passages have far less to do with our status as individuals and far more to do with God's grand plan to bring grace and salvation to more than just his covenant people, Israel, even to us. Gentiles, to experience salvation through this hidden mystery of God. And that's good news. We'll come back to that in Ephesians 3 in the coming weeks. But this this cross of Christ was predestined. The salvation for Gentiles was predestined, determined by God. I think C.S. Lewis in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he, he illustrates this well for us. He gives us a picture of this. Remember, when the great lion Aslan is laid on the stone table, And he's killed by the white witch and all her servants of darkness. And they're celebrating. They're rejoicing what they think is the end of their enemy, the great lion, Aslan. But remember, he knows something that they don't know. He knows something deeper, something that was determined before time, from ages past, before these wicked people even existed. He knew that something else was coming. And remember, the lion says this, Aslan says this. He says, there's a deeper magic. There's an older plan that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a a traitor's stead, the stone table would crack and death itself would start working backward. This is a picture of what Christ had in store, what God had in store through Christ for us, for those who are in Christ. 
Next, we look at Romans. Romans chapter 8. You have to flip backwards to the left. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30, where this word is used twice. Who is it talking about? And what is it saying? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. It's a great verse, isn't it? That's you who are in Christ. Those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined for what? This is you, believer. What are you predestined for? To be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This was the message from last week. You who are in Christ are justified. You who are in Christ will be, justif- will be glorified ultimately. And so who is this addressing? Believers? How do you spell believers? I actually don't know. Is it E or I first? Huh? Thank you. Spell check is awesome. (laughs) Believers, and we are predestined for what? To become like Jesus, our firstborn older brother, to resemble him, for God to, to finish this work in us and through us that we look like Jesus ultimately. This is our hope, that we don't, don't show up before God when we die and wonder what's going to happen. He, not you, he has promised that he will accomplish this, that you will become like Christ. You who are in Christ, those who love God, believers who are in Christ, are, are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So in him you are justified. In him, you are being sanctified. You are becoming more like Christ. And in him, you will be glorified, fully reflecting his perfect, holy, and righteous image of Jesus. This is what awaits you, believer. And this is good news, isn't it? This is good news. Lastly, let's look back at Ephesians. Ephesians, starting in verse 3, because there's a, a really important phrase here. That is not the word predestined, but it, it kind of gives, gives more of this idea that we see in Romans. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world for something. He chose believers for what? That we should be holy and blameless before him that we should be holy and blameless before him. So in Christ, as we think about our identity again, in Christ, I am a saint. In Christ, I am. I have grace and peace from God. And in Christ, I am chosen to be and become holy and blameless. Who is chosen for what? Those who are in Christ are chosen to be and become holy and blameless. So so this verse, if you look at any of these verses in context in which it talks about predestination, never is it describing in these, these cases of predestination, God arbitrarily saying, you're selected for this, you're selected for that. No, actually, it is giving us a promise for you who are in him of something that is going to happen. And that is that you will be able to stand before him by faith in him, by his grace alone, with his exchanged righteousness for your sin, holy and blameless. I I know you don't feel holy and blameless. 
But God is going to complete this work in you, Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. If you are his, you can rest in this assurance that he who began a good work in you will see it through to glory. You, believer, will become like Christ. Do you know that? You'll become a clear reflection. And we just sang, standing face to face with he who died and rose again. And we will look like him. We will become like him. This clouded, darkened mirror will be made fully clear as we see him face to face and know him fully, even as we are fully known. This is the hope and sure, steadfast horizon for the believer. Justified saints, freed from the penalty of sin, overcoming the power of sin by the Spirit of God within us and looking forward to being free from the presence of, of sin as we are glorified. God in Christ will complete that work, that work that he began in our salvation. And so then in verse five, it says this, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. We saw this Last week and this week, this addressed at the beginning of Ephesians is, is for those who are in Christ. And what it says is that for those who are in Christ, that is you believers, you are predestined for something. Adoption. And with that adoption, an inheritance, a glorious inheritance. You are predestined for adoption. You wonder, does that mean that the adoption is complete? What is this adoption? Actually, in Romans, Paul makes clear that even the fullness of our adoption, it's in the future. It's yet future. We are still awaiting the, the completion, the culmination of this adoption. Listen to this in Romans 8, 20, 22 and 23. He says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only, only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly, as we wait eagerly for what? We wait eagerly for adoption as sons. And he tells us what that is. He says, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is so important. I need you to see this. In Christ, we still struggle, we still suffer along with all the creation, but we look forward to a future time and event in which we come into the fullness of our inheritance as adopted sons and daughters. We wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Those who through faith respond to the gospel are now in Christ, indwelt by, sealed by his Holy Spirit, and therefore you are predestined for something something good and glorious, adoption as sons and daughters. So, so then we see that this word predestination in this context and in the other passages in which it's used, it really points to something very straightforward. The God from before time had a plan to save and redeem humanity, including Gentiles. And not only to give you some kind of assurance of, of salvation for today, but eternally he has a plan that he will see through for you to become fully like Christ, to walk into your heavenly home as confident sons and daughters of the risen Lord. This is the beauty of this picture of adoption. In our sin, we're neither lovely nor lovable, yet Christ came and he died to pay for our adoption. And when Paul speaks of adoption, he's, he's saying that just as in Roman culture in which an adopted child would be due, would be, um, would be able to receive 
this inheritance, they'd be full heirs of the inheritance from their parents. So too, we receive as believers in Christ, the full inheritance from God. Even now, do you know that adoption is an extremely expensive process? Do you know that? But do you know that the child in that adoption doesn't pay for it? The parent pays the price in full, a large price, a massive cost. But here's the beauty of it. The child receives everything entitled to a son or daughter. Do we have the fullness of our inheritance yet in Christ? Do we have the fullness of it yet? We have it in part. And, but we can have confidence that we are heirs, co-heirs, siblings with Christ in his family. In Christ, you are precious to your father. From his perspective, you are worthy of the cross and you are welcomed even now. I love this picture, Jesus, our firstborn brother. He says he's preparing a room for you in his house. In resurrection glory, we will go into his home. Romans 8, 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This is our hope. We are predestined to come into the fullness of this adoption as sons and daughters, and we will see the fullness of our inheritance. That's why Jesus reassures our hearts. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and, uh, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. I want you to picture this. If you can, picture yourself as a little child. Picture yourself as a little child awaiting adoption, orphaned, awaiting adoption. And the day finally comes where you're adopted. The paperwork is signed, and yet you look forward to eventually, soon, hopefully, going to your new home. Imagine yourself stepping up to that door as, as a child to this new home, full of hope, full of excitement, but also uncertainty. Will I be accepted? Will I fit in? Is this really a place for me? Fear and worry washing over you potentially, looking at that door and wondering what awaits me on the other side of that. You have confidence in, in the love of these parents that are bringing you in, but what else awaits me beyond that door? And the door swings open, and there you see something you didn't know was coming. You see that you have a brother. The brother runs to greet you at the door, and he says, I've been waiting for you. I've been waiting for you. I'm your brother. He kneels down to you, little child. He takes his hand, his nail-scarred hands, and puts them on your face. He raises your gaze to see him, and he says, it's so good that we can finally be face-to-face. -face. And then he says, wow, you look so much like me. He places his arm over your shoulder. He walks you into the home and he says, come, see your room. I've been preparing it for you. This is the picture that we have in Christ. Wait till you see it. Wait till you see it. In him, we have redemption through his blood. We have forgiveness from our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ, you are a saint. In Christ, you are chosen to be holy and blameless before him. In Christ, you are predestined for the fullness of your adoption and inheritance. In Christ, you are redeemed. 
In Christ, you are forgiven. In Christ, you are saved, not by your works, but by grace. Chosen by grace. Kept by grace. Gifted by grace. Empowered by grace. Matured and sanctified by grace. You endure and you persevere by his grace. And you'll come into his kingdom because of his grace. And in Christ, the Holy Spirit of God is the seal of this, the guarantee of our inheritance. Martin Luther, the famed reformer of the Catholic Church, he wrote of what we have in Christ in his great hymn, A Mighty Fortress. I'm just going to give you a few phrases from it. He says, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. He's saying he is our fortress. He is our refuge. He is our strength. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. So let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. But God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. His kingdom is forever. This is a picture for us. If you are in Christ by faith, you are secure in his fortress. And that fortress is predestined to stand firm eternally. You are secure in the fortress of his grace and in your sure salvation. You are secure in his hand. Though the floods of life come, Peter uses our salvation, this picture of Noah and his family in the ark. Though the floods of life come, if you are in Christ, represented by your baptism, we are safe in the ark of our salvation. If you're in Christ, you're his child and he will dress you, he will provide for you, he will shelter you, and he will love you with an unshakable, perfect love of the perfect father to the praise of his glory. But if you're not in Christ, if you're not in Christ, you're not in the fortress of his salvation. You are outside of salvation and you are in death. But this shouldn't scare you because today is simply an invitation to be in him, to respond to the gospel, to step into the security, the preordained, the foreknown security of the fortress of salvation in Christ. When Jesus tells his disciples, and he goes to prepare a place for us. Thomas asks him, how will we know the way? And he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And he bids us come to the Father through him. Today may be the day in which you, for the first time, clearly heal, hear that calling and you respond. Be in Christ. Believe in what he's accomplished for you. Receive this salvation, this redemption, this adoption, this glorification that we look forward to. All gifts of grace to the glory of God, they are available to you. All you need to do is simply accept that you are lost in your sin and brokenness. Lost. Believe that Christ through his death on the cross has provided the only way for our salvation. And today, confess that he is your Lord. Would you stand with me? I'm going to read the rest of this scripture in Ephesians the band will come up and we'll respond by going to receive prayer over the crosses and by singing, by singing in response to this great and glorious news. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory.